0: What a privilege to be adopted into your family. Well, you know what? I'm not so much adopted into your family. We're just family. Right? This is what I love about whenever I have a chance to connect with other Christians. We're not yet friends, but we're already family. We don't know each other. I mean, we we've never, many of us have been in the same place at the same time together physically, but we start off as family. It's, it's I mean, the only parallel I could think of would be as if you're, you're separated from brothers and sisters at birth and then later in your adult life you find out you have other family and then you're invited to the first family reunion where you walk into this place where there's all these strangers but you know that they're kin and that they're blood and we have that kind of experience every time we get together with other Christians so the sense of these are my people even though I've never met them so the friendship just comes more easily after that when we know that we're family at least it should that's what Jesus prayed for in the unity of the church I mean once we got over killing each other because we disagree about things, then we were able to enjoy the family picnic. And can I just say, I love how you guys pray for other churches and keep them in mind. And, and we have a theology of the unity of the church, but it's a beautiful thing when our theology becomes practice and we actually begin to cheer for one another. And we've been cheering for you. We love what's going on here at C4 Church. Uh, the series you're doing, We the People, fantastic. Yes, we've, been, we've got our eyes on you. And we like, we like, love what's happening. So it's a real privilege to be able to hang out with family today and just be family together. I want to talk to you today about something that's a fascinating paradox about being human. It's, and, it, and it helps explain some things about our Christianity and our identity in Christ as the people of God. And so as we, we talk about what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be the people of Christ, in, in, in this Sunday, in this series, I want to just adjust the focal Uh, depth of the lens and zoom out a bit and say what's it what's it mean to be human first of all why does God want to redeem us at all certainly he redeems us because he is love he he what motivates God comes out of God which is a beautiful thing to know because it means I don't have to worry about being good enough or smart enough or pretty enough or anything because God's love for me comes from Him. Like like a, a, a mother and a newborn child, it's not something she really has to work up to and say, I guess I could live with this person. Maybe this could… You know, there's a lot of debating when you're dating about whether or not you're going to get married. Is this the right person, do I think? But when you give birth to a child, you don't go through that initial awkward phase of I wonder if I could. Maybe I should. This could be the right baby for me. There's just... There's something about your motherhood that just comes out. I do tend to use feminine analogies because I come from a fem- feminine perspective. I was raised with all sisters, and, uh, and now I am raising all daughters. So I am a man who's in touch with his estrogen. <laughs> Having three older sisters was awesome. I loved it. Hand-me-downs were a bit of a drag <laughs> in more ways than one, but, uh, Yeah. It's the gift that keeps on giving that way. Uh, So, uh, and so now, uh, love and raising daughters. But there is, and God is the father God with a mother's heart. He's not afraid to say, you know, I'm like a mother as well that that just can't forget her kids. And even if a human mother could, I couldn't. There's something about who God is it just comes out of Him. It's just there. It just is. And this is beautiful. And so, His love for us is precious. And we we are we are wired to respond because he makes us in his image and his likeness. And so God redeems us because he just is, and also because he's made us in his image. He calls us valuable to him, precious to him. When you look at Luke 15, the three stories of the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son, in each case, the one searching is motivated, but what they are searching for is also valuable. The lost coin has value. The lost sheep has value. The lost son certainly has value. You, you have the one coming out of the one who is searching, but it's not as though what's being searched for is meaningless because we are made in God's image and in God's likeness, and so he calls us precious. Now, we're not only God's image bearers. We are God's broken image bearers, for we are those who have reached out to eat from the wrong tree. We have... Try to take things into our own hands, literally and metaphorically. And so we are those odd concoctions of being that are precious image bearers of the divine. And yet we are broken, we are sinful, we are misfiring. And, and we need healing, we need wholeness, we need to be put back together again. And so whenever we meet anyone, anyone on the planet, we are meeting someone who is this fascinating mix. When you look at world history, when you listen to the news, you hear stories that are a product of that fascinating mix. You you see the beauty and the glory and the horror and the agony. This is what it means to be human, and it's all inside every one of us. Sometimes in our theology, we start as though the Bible began in Genesis chapter 3. Who are we? We are sinners. First of all, the tragedy of our sinfulness is because we were made for perfection. We were made glorious, but we have fallen. And now the rest of the story is how in Christ he's putting the pieces back together again. So when you meet another human being, Christian or not, know that both is, is, uh, is in some way being reflected. When you think of who you are, both may be reflected. Uh, Many of us relate to nature. How many of you, when you're in nature, that's when you feel like you come alive? You sense God. You say, there's something beautiful out there in the cosmos making this. This is Nature does it for you. How many of you are like that? That's awesome. All right. So I don't relate to you at all, but still, I'm glad you're there. For me, it's the city. I love the city. When I am downtown Toronto, I come alive. The feeling of the concrete between my toes. The... <laughs> The sight of the skyscrapers eclipsing any sky, the sound of competing car stereos as they drive by, the smell of urine wafting up from the subway. It's just, I'm in the city, man. And it's, I I do come alive with people watching. There's just so much diversity. And and for me, the good news is, is that we started in the garden, but we're ending in a city. Sorry, we win. Mm. So as we head, but there's a big garden in the city, so it kind of works out. So there is this amazing, amazing reaction we have at least those, you nature folks, I get out in nature, and I just think, "Uh uh-oh, bugs, right? But you nature folks, you see a sunset, and you're like, oh, and it's not like you haven't seen one before. You know, it's the same old sun, different configuration of the clouds, hello, there's some new, okay, that's a nice shading there, that's great. I see the sunset, I go, yeah, okay, I've seen one. You guys, though, you see it, you're like, oh. Check out, and you can be, and if you're on vacation, you're in another place, then it's a, well, it's a different foreground, right? different landscape, but the sun's still, but, it's still, but still, it's like you've seen it for the first time. Like, Ed, get your camera, get your camera, get your camera. Look at that. Right? Well, of all of God's creation, the thing that most is infused with something glorious is humanity, is you, and those you will meet. And in Christ, He brings that together in a a beautiful reborn version of our humanity. But when you meet anyone, you are meeting that initial struggling, broken stage of that. When you see someone, I mean really, if a sunset is what gets you going. Seeing another human being, young and old. And we have so objectified human beings, we like to focus on those who are what we would just see as physically or sexually appealing but to to look into the eyes of someone young and old uh, fat and skinny and and of all their diversity just go there's beauty here there's precious value here is a a beautiful way to to begin to appreciate who i am and who i am in christ in fact take a moment and just look around the room for a second look around the room And make eye contact with other people. Strangers, this is gonna be awkward. (laughs) Go ahead and just look around the room. And ask God to give you that feeling. Stop looking for the cute guy over in row three. That's That's not what I'm talking about. Right? We should, it wouldn't it be amazing if every time you walked into the room where there was another person, you were like, whoa! Ed, get your camera, get your camera, get your camera. <laughs> it's a human being. You're so precious to God, and that's why Jesus has come to rescue and to repair and to bring you back to who you were designed to be. This is this amazing thing about our humanity, but there is we have a, a fascinating history because we mess up, and then God redeems, but we do have a way of taking His good gifts and mucking with them and and turning them into systems and and institutions and creating buffers actually between us and god when god just wants direct intimacy with us Uh, and and there's different names we could call those buffers those things that almost we get intimidated or scared or worried uh, that god's grace and his love for us the, the the gospel the message this good news just couldn't be that true And so we've got to somehow protect ourselves. We need an escape hatch. And we create distance between us and God when really he wants that intimacy. You can call that distance different things. Systematization, institutionalization of faith. You could call it legalism. Uh, I call it religion. And we all use our words differently to refer to different things. Uh, For me, when I speak of religion, uh, like some authors, uh, be it uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer or Tim Keller or Carl um, Bart, authors that use it in a pejorative term to say it's a great word that captures us creating a buffer between us and God. Um, some people use the word religion positively. What I think the Bible uses the word faith for. Faith just means trust. I have the courage to trust that this is true. This good news message really is that good. So I'm going to trust that this is true. By the way, I talked about being family at the beginning. If you're not part of this family of, of the family of Christ. Uh, you can be. It's that simple. When your heart shifts and you just let go and you say, I, I trust that it's true, uh, that's faith, that the good news message of Jesus really is that good and it really is that true. And when we do that, we're welcomed into this beautiful intimacy with God and with one another. But from the beginning, we see the human tendency to create the buffers Something between us and God, just in case. In Genesis 3, uh, and I'm borrowing here a little bit from uh, theologian Karl Barth who talks about this and others have written about it. We find something fascinating. We find the the first sin, but here's what Karl Barth would say. He would say that there had to be a context for that first sin. It's not the first sin itself, but it is the context. It's the soil of sin. It is the primordial ooze out of which comes that first act of rebellion. And he would call it the seed of religion. Open up your Bibles with me or your smartphones to Genesis chapter 3. God has made these beautiful image bearers. In his image, in his likeness. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we have a fascinating conversation between Eve and the serpent. And we read this Genesis 3 1. This is a story we know so well, of course, if we've grown up in the church, if we've spent any time in the church. But let's take a look at this with fresh eyes. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He's good. He's good. He might say crafty, as the text says. He's good. He's not just an enemy of God. He's a crafty one. So he's saying, so did God, so it's a question, did God really say, and you can't eat from anything? So he's just making suggestions that God is a little more anal than he actually is, and that God is a little more, I just gotta I keep a tight control on everything. So God's really just cut you off from anything? Is that what really, so he plants the seed of doubt, and he asks it in the form of a question, and then Eve responds and says, well, no, no, the woman said, remember now, she, her motivation here is not evil, she is defending God to the serpent. She says, the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat from any of the trees in the garden, but God did say, you may not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. So, you have Satan leading the way by planting the thought that God is not as gracious as he actually is. He's actually just about saying, you can't have any fun. You can't enjoy your food. You can't touch anything. I'm just here to create awesome stuff that you can't have. (laughs) Nana, Nana, Boo Boo. That this is, this is his message. And you will hear that message. And you'll, you'll sometimes buy into that message. God, why would you create this if I can't have it? Why would you give me these desires if I can't fulfill them? Why is it, it's your fault? Why don't you? This is the reasoning of Satan. And he comes to her, plants the thought, She begins to defend him. No, no, no. It's just that one tree. And she says, it's just that one tree in the middle of the garden. You must not eat it. Oh, and you must not touch it or you will die. She says a little too much there. God didn't say that. Now, what someone pointed out is you have in the sense, and we're just having fun with the text here, but you have the underpinnings of religion beginning. And here's, here's what blows my mind. Aside from what Satan is doing to plant thoughts, There's something in the medium of the question and the answer itself that is creating the soil out of which sin can arise. And here's what it is. blows my mind. This is the first time in the text where it is recorded uh, a conversation of people talking about God rather than to God as though God's not there. Simply by asking the question, even if it was a fine question, the medium itself of getting Eve to talk about God as though God's not there begins to offer her a mindset that suggests that God is distant. This God in whom we live and move and have our being, uh, Eve, tell me about him. Let's talk about him. I don't know. And what Eve could have done is react, said, well, why don't you ask him yourself, you know? He's, he's a rat. Why don't, why don't we ask him together? Why don't, but admirably she wants to defend God, but she gets suckered into the mentality first of all, which is God needs me to defend Him because I don't know where He is right now. And she enters into the conversation. So in, uh, having again, in some sense, you have the first seminary led by Professor Satan. Let's let's theologize about God. Is God this? Is God that? Let's talk about God as though He's not actually here. You have the first seminary, and then you have the first sermon preached by Pastor Eve. And She, she defends God, but like most sermons, she says a little too much, goes on a little too long. <laughs> she had just stopped a little sooner, would have been better. You have, in some sense, the totality of the first service because you have Adam there as the first congregant. Apparently, he's standing there the whole time. Just, well, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so. uh, he, he's just there taking it in. And then you have the first sacrament. Together they partake of the forbidden fruit. They reach for the wrong tree. And why? Fascinating, it says. I mean, again, all of Eve's motives seem good. Good for food, pleasing to the eye. And the text says, and desirable for gaining wisdom. Do you see that? In verse 6. Yeah, who doesn't, what's wrong with that? i want to be wise? But you see, when, we, when, when Satan can manipulate us to just start offering our best, our best, best decision-making, our best motives, but to start doing that as though God's not here, uh, as though we're somehow apart from him. We're, look, we're cut off from our commanding officer. We're out here in the field on our own. We've got to make the best decisions we can. Let's go. You do your best, but you do your best cut off from the one who wants the intimacy with you, and your best can lead you into some real muck and mire. Eve's motives seem good. Her desire's good. And, and just before verse 6, it says... Uh, In verse 5, Satan says, God knows you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be like God. And the great tragedy, of course, is that God had already made Adam and Eve like God. But all these things that they want don't seem to be bad. They're just going about it as though God's not there. This, as some have said, would be the religion, in a sense, becomes the seedbed out of which we sin. Seeing how this pans out in Scripture as we move forward, look at verse 15. The story, This is a setup for the story of Cain and Abel. Uh, verse 15 is when God... God is now pronouncing his curse upon Adam and Eve and the serpent. And when he turns to the serpent, he says something fascinating. Genesis 3:15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. It will cost him, but he'll kill you. He'll defeat you. Her seed, that's who he says it will be, her seed. Now, this is all happening in the presence of everyone. Adam and Eve is there. Eve hears this, my seed. I am going to give birth to the one who will finally defeat this crafty serpent, who will make everything right. And we have no sense that Eve would have known that this seed would have been multiple generations in the future. All she knows is that her offspring will be a part of this rescue plan of God. And so this helps explain the story of Cain and Abel in the next chapter. When Eve gives birth to Cain, her firstborn son, it would have made sense for Eve to think this is the promised child, this is the one, it's my seed. And the te- the text actually records her uh, her joy and her astonishment. You see in verse chapter 4 now, chapter 4 verse 1 it says, and Adam, what does your translation say? Adam, mine says, made love to his wife or uh, was intimate with his wife or lay with his wife. The Hebrew word here, yada, means to know. And Adam knew his wife, knew, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Adam knew his wife, yada, yada, which uh, always makes me giggle when someone says yada, yada, yada. And I, <laughs> <laughs> what are you giggling for, Bruxy? Oh, Nothing. And Adam, yada, his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. This is amazing. Really, the first birth. She didn't see it coming. It's not like she had seen another birth before. Isn't it kind of weird how we make babies? Where they come from? Come on, be honest. First time you ever found out. What was your reaction? Did, ew it, it was ew and then really gross tell me more you have this emotional push me pull you right i'm like fascinated and it's yucky yeah. and and Eve, this is amazing this this i mean consider this privilege of procreation talk about being like god that you are given the potential male and female to in committed covenant with someone else. I know it can happen outside of that, but that's not God's design. In committed covenant to someone else, reflecting the the heart and union of God, out of that you can create life. You can go into the laboratory and say, it's life! You have the power to reach into the realm of nothingness and pull a soul into the realm of something. Talk about being God-like. Oh, you're not God. You're God-like. But if you run with that while severed from God, think of the damage you can do. You've been given great power and great responsibility. Man, you sound like the man of steel. You've been given this great power, and you can use it to do amazing things or to wreak havoc. You have the power to reach into the realm of non-existence and pull a soul into the realm of existence. Amazing. God could have created all the humans he wanted himself, but he partners with us. And so Eve is blown away by this. With the help of the Lord, I have done this. And Adam's going, I I thought I, I I don't know, whatever. (laughs) With the help of the Lord, I have made a man and so that's her firstborn, that's Cain, and then later Abel. Now, it's a fascinating story, because God prefers one sacrifice over the other. The text is not clear why, and theologians have been debating this. Jewish rabbis and theologians, for long, long before Christians came on the scene, have been sharing multiple debates about this and perspectives, and then Christians have joined in for the last couple thousand years. Nobody knows for sure. But it fits with what I've been saying, how if we're tracking What we've been saying about Genesis 3 helps explain something in Genesis 4. Because Cain, even though God just seems to prefer Abel's sacrifice to Cain, Cain goes ballistic and kills his brother. That's a little bit overkill, don't you think? I mean, it's a bit of a drama queen. And yet, it would make sense If Eve has been anticipating the coming of Cain, her seed, who will make everything right, and she would raise Cain with this sense of honor and purpose and destiny, son, I was told that my seed would crush the head of the serpent. Son, you were born for greatness. You are destined to make things right. And Cain would have grown up with this sense of, I'll know when the time is right. Because Cain and Abel would have asked those stories, Mom, Dad, tell us again, how come we're not living in that garden? Because out here, there's just a lot of toiling. I'm not big on the toiling. Why do we got to toil so much? Well, we'll tell you. We kind of stole God's fruit. It's the fruit he told us not to take, and we did. And then the serpent, and then the thing. But there's the promise. My seed, Cain, is going to make it right. So Cain, Cain grows up, and he gets ready. For the day that's right. And then as we read the text, it says, Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In verse 3, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruit of his soil as an offering to the Lord, as a gift to the Lord. Cain brought and it uses the same word here, fruit. Your translation may have something different, but that's the original Hebrew word. It uses the same word as what Adam and Eve took from the tree. Same word fruit. It seems reasonable with the text that at this point Cain is saying, I figured out a way to make it right. I'm gonna give God back his fruit. I've invested my life in the soil. I know the stories, they've been passed on to me, and, and, and it's my opportunity. And what is a gift to God is really a barter. It's a negotiation. It's, I'm going to make it right. I'm going to pay God back his fruit and God's saying, I don't need this. Now, the mystery isn't why does God not want Cain's offering? The mystery is why does he accept Abel's? Because did you notice God doesn't ask for sacrifice here? Sometimes that eludes us. There is no passage here where God says, and if you want to worship me, kill something. He doesn't ask for it here. This is a human impulse and a human idea, and we offer it to God, and it seems as though Abel simply is doing this out of gratitude. There is no one-for-one negotiation. And God accepts it. Later on, he'll accept the next sacrifice will come from Noah after the flood and the rainbow comes. And Noah again just offers something. We have a number of different sacrifices leading up to Abraham, none of which are ever commanded by God. They're always the human impulse to offer God gratitude, and he accepts it. Is that beautiful? There's something about Cain's, though, that's more than just gratitude, it's negotiation. And his life's purpose leads up for this, and God says, no, Cain, no. And then as we read on, it says, the Lord worked with favor on Abel's offering, but on Cain's and his offering, he did not look with favor. That's it. No, 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 Cain, no, 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 you don't, no. That's it. So Cain becomes very angry, flies into a range, his face is downcast. And then in verse 6, God corrects Cain, and what does God say? It says, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry, and why is your face so downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? All you got to do is do what's right. You know what? Just do what's right, you'll be accepted. Which is interesting. He doesn't give him technique tweaking on his sacrifice. We have read back into this and said, Ah, he didn't offer blood. He offered fruit. That's... that's uh, timer, it's time to get up. <laughs> he, uh, Abel, Abel just gives what he gives, and God, God doesn't come to Cain and say, oh, it has to be blood, and say this, or it has to, he just says, if you live right, if you do well, you'll be accepted, that's his message, that's all I really want, you know. Okay, you guys want to show your gratitude however you want, show your gratitude, but don't negotiate with me. You can't save yourself. You, you don't need and and just just live well. Just live well. You'll be accepted. Because if you don't, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. But you must rule over it, Cain. You, I believe better in you. You can do this. Cain is furious. His whole life has lost purpose now. He's not the savior of the world he thought he was. And he kills his brother. Out of this comes a rage that is also very indicative of religion. Uh, anger is something that we can struggle struggle with when we take our eyes off of God and the grace that he offers us and we start to compare ourselves with others and we say, why have not my dreams or my visions been fulfilled and why have I not accomplished this and when can I... And I don't like, especially then if we see others accomplishing things or we... Then it's, ah, how come... Oh, and, and that can often come out of a sense of looking out instead of looking up. This thing called religion can become the seedbed of many destructive things. So then, when Jesus comes, he puts an end to all of this. He becomes the final sacrifice. He offers his own body as the The sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Once God offers Himself as a sacrifice, what can you add to it? Really? How are you going to top that up? He's not only the sacrifice, He calls His body the temple, the temple where the sacrifice is offered. He's the sacrifice, He's the temple, and He's the high priest who offers the sacrifice. He's the the whole religious system of His day summed up in Christ. He came not to abandon, but to, sorry, yes, He didn't come to abandon or demolish the law, but to fulfill it, and He fulfills it all in Himself. He becomes the entire system of salvation of the Old Covenant in him, and then he offers us this salvation as pure grace. He pushes the reset button on the whole thing and invites us into this this beautiful intimacy. And I think of what the prophet Micah had said. and This is all through the Old Covenant, but here's just one example. Micah had had said this in Micah 6, 7, and 8. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil, Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions? Now he's almost mocking. I mean, how many sacrifices should I make in order to one-up everyone else and please God? Do I offer the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Here it is, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. With your God. This is the beauty of why as Christians we do things like pray and praise. Because it reminds us that, while we talk about God, which is not in and of itself wrong. We should not talk about God as though God's not here. We should not pride ourselves in our own rationalizations as though God's left the building and he needs us to defend him. Rather, it is our privilege to be in partnership with him all the time. So, yes, we have these conversations. But then we come back to talking to, not just about, to having faith in, not trying to build our religion, out of which all kinds of sin can arise. One last verse, and then a final story. The last verse is in Thessalonians. It's Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5. It says this. Rejoice always and pray without ceasing. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Now those of us who are in Christ, we get it. Grace, grace has come to us. So what's left to do for our own salvation? Now everything we do is simply an act of Rejoicing, an act of communion, praying without ceasing, and an act of gratitude. For gratitude is the only appropriate response to grace. Gratitude is the only appropriate response to grace. So we, I understand from an outsider perspective, Christianity looks like every other religion. We're a bunch of people who have a holy place. We get together on a Sunday morning. We have a holy book we read from. We say our prayers. We sing our songs. We do all this stuff. Isn't that so that we can be good enough to finally be accepted by the divine? No. It may look that way from the outside in. But from the inside out, we realize that we don't do any of these things to become good enough god his impulse has come from himself to rescue us we have been bathed in his grace we have been accepted and redeemed and now all that's left to do is for the party to begin to rejoice always to commune to pray without ceasing to be grateful and so I, we say this at the meeting house and i say this to you you are that weird bunch of people who get together every sunday morning to celebrate the fact that you don't have to get together every sunday morning <laughs> Christians are the people who love to read this book so that we can be renewed in the message that we don't have to read this book. This is not our system of salvation. This is our want-to, go-to place to get to know the person who has graced us. It's coming out of a heart of joy and gratitude, not the have-to, the want-to. We sing songs of praise not because when we sing enough, God will be pleased and let us into heaven. We sing songs of praise because we, can't, we gotta find creative ways to just let it out, let out the romance that's what worship is it's the romantic part of our marriage with God you know where he says you know what I, why don't you just why don't you just tell me tell me what you think about me you know what put it to music I love it when you do that <laughs> and we say I'm God I'm going to write you a love song I'm going to sing it and he goes mm, mm, mm. yeah I love that And so we're romantic with God, and we're celebrating this. All that we do as Christians, we do for celebration, not salvation. Because in grace, if we trust that it's true, God has click, dragged, and dropped your future into your present. Judgment Day has come to today, and you are declared not guilty and redeemed and saved from your sin and set into his kingdom to live a whole new way. And we celebrate that. I said one uh, verse and one story, but I think for the sake of time, I'd prefer just to pray instead of tell the story. Enough talking about God, now let's talk to Him. And then I think we're going to sing too, it's just perfect. Get all romantic in here. And we prayed before the service, and even though we've been talking about God, we... Uh, we ha- haven't been ignoring the fact that He's here, but now it's just really good to stop. Pray without ceasing is beautiful, right? Always have this mentality. God's here, and everything I'm saying, I'm, I'm kind of saying, yeah, is that right? You think, you know, like He's He's the person who's always right here. It's like so I'm talking to you, but I'm kind of talking with Him too. It's like, are you with me? Am I saying the right? Did I get that right? Are you? That everything is communion, and as you fellowship with each other and, and with other people, you're also praying without ceasing. At least you can be. You can cultivate that mentality, that awareness. But then at times we just stop and say, now I just just want to talk to you, God. And reconnect in that intimacy, that acceptance, that grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You have offered us a reason to be joyful a reason to be grateful a reason to celebrate you have offered us freedom not only from our sin but from our religion father i th- I, I ask that you would forgive us for our sin selfishness, our our wanderings forgive us even when we have meant well in defending you and talking about you but in the process we just left you out I thank you for your forgiveness your cleansing and your grace and I look forward to the new and fresh and wonderful and exciting things you want to do in our lives as individuals and in the lives of this place as a church community. We look forward with anticipation to the beauty that lies ahead and the struggle that lies ahead and the challenge that lies ahead for we do it all with you and with your people. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.